0: Chapter 28 A Stranger in the Mountains of Heaven Valentine's hand drew subtle, complicated shapes in the air above the girl's bowed head, and her face was calm and smiling, little suspecting that she was being blessed by the League's worst enemy. Tom watched from behind a shrine to the Sky Goddess, his eyes had known who the red-robed monk was all along, and now his brain caught up with them in a flurry of understandings. Captain Cora had said that the thirteenth-floor elevator had been haunting the mountains. It must have dropped Valentine off in the crags near Gompa, and he had come the rest of the way on foot, creeping into the city like a thief. But why? What secret mission could have brought him here? Tom didn't know what to feel. He was frightened, of course, to be so close to the man who had tried to murder him, but at the same time he was thrilled by Valentine's daring. What courage it must have taken to sneak into the great stronghold of the League under the very noses of London's enemies! It was the sort of adventure that Valentine had written about, in books that Tom had read again and again, huddled under the blankets in the third-class apprentice's dorm, with a flashlight, long after lights out. Valentine finished his blessing and moved on. For a few moments Tom lost sight of him among the crowds in the square, but then he spotted the red robe climbing on up the broad central stairway. He followed at a safe distance, past beggars and guards and hot food vendors, none of whom guessed that the red-robed figure was anything more than one of those crazy holy men. Valentine had his head bowed now, and he climbed quickly, so Tom did not feel in any danger as he hurried along twenty or thirty paces behind. But he still didn't know what he should do. Hester deserved to know that her parents' murderer was here. Should he find her, tell her? But Valentine must be on some important mission for London, maybe gathering information, so that the engineers would know exactly where to aim Medusa. If Hester killed him, Tom would have betrayed his whole city. He climbed upward, ignoring the pain of his broken ribs. Around him the terraces of Batmunk Gompa were speckled with lamps and lanterns, and the envelopes of taxi balloons glowed from within as they rose and fell, like strange sea creatures swimming around a coral reef. And slowly he realised that he didn't want Valentine to succeed in whatever he was planning. London was no better than Tunbridge Wheels, and this place was old and beautiful. He wouldn't let it be smashed. "'It's Valentine!' he shouted, charging up the stairs, trying to warn the passers-by of the danger. But they just stared at him without understanding and when at last he reached the red-robed man and pulled his hood down, he found the round, startled face of a pilgrim monk blinking back at him. He looked around wildly and saw what had happened. Valentine had taken a different stairway out of the central square, leaving Tom following the wrong red robe. He went running down again. Valentine was barely visible, a red speck climbing through lantern light toward the high places of the city and the eerie of the great air-destroyers. "'It's Valentine!' shouted Tom, pointing, but none of the people around him spoke English. Some thought he was mad, others thought he meant that Medusa was about to strike. A wave of panic spread across the square, and soon he heard warning gongs sounding in the densely packed terraces of shops and inns below. His first thought was to find Hester, but he had no idea where to look. Then he ran to a taxi balloon and told the pilot, Follow that monk! But the woman smiled and shook her head, not understanding. Fung Wa! Tom shouted, remembering Anna Fang's league name, and the taxi pilot nodded and smiled, casting off. He tried to calm himself as the balloon rose. He would find Miss Fang. Miss Fang would know what to do. He remembered how she had trusted him with the Jenny during the flight across the mountains and felt ashamed for turning on her in the council meeting. He was expecting the taxi to take him to the Governor's Palace, but instead it landed near the terrace where the Jenny Hanover was birthed. The pilot pointed toward an inn that clung to the underside of the terrace above like a house-martin's nest. ''Fung Hua!'' she said helpfully. ''Fung Hua!'' For a panic-stricken moment, Tom thought that she had carried him to an inn with the same name as Miss Fang. Then, on one of the establishment's many balconies, he caught sight of the aviatrix's blood-red coat. He thrust all the money he had at the pilot, shouting, Keep the change! and left her staring at the unfamiliar faces of Quirk and Chrome as he raced away. Miss Fang was sitting at a balcony table with Captain Cora, and the stern young Carolyn Flyer, who had been so angry at Tom's outburst earlier. They were drinking tea and deep in discussion, but they all leaped up as Tom blundered out onto the balcony. "'Where's Hester?' he demanded. "'Down on the mooring platforms in one of her moods,' said Miss Fang. "'Why, Valentine!' he gasped. "'He's here, dressed as a monk!' The inn's musicians stopped playing and the sound of the alarm gongs in the lower city came drifting through the open windows. "'Valentine, here!' sneered the Carolyn girl. "'It's a lie. The barbarian thinks he can frighten us.' "'Be quiet, Satya!' Miss Fang reached across and gripped Tom by the arm. "'Is he alone?' As quickly as he could, Tom told her what he had seen. She made a hissing sound through her clenched teeth, He has come after our air fleet. He means to cripple us. One man cannot destroy an air fleet, protested Cora, smiling at the notion. You've never seen Valentine at work, said the aviatrix. She was already on her feet, excited at the prospect of crossing swords with London's greatest agent. Satya, go and rouse the guard. Tell them the High eeries are in danger. She turned to Tom. Thank you for warning us she said gently, as if she understood the agonizing decision he'd had to make. I've got to tell Hester, he protested. Certainly not, she told him. She will only get herself killed or kill Valentine, and I want him kept alive for questioning. Stay here until it is all over. A last ferocious smile, and she was gone, down the steps and out of the panicked inn with Cora at her heels. She looked grim and dangerous, and very beautiful, and Tom felt himself brushed by the same fierce love that he knew Cora and the Carolyn girl and the rest of the League must feel for her. But then he thought of Hester, and what she would say when she learned that he had seen Valentine and hadn't even told her. Great quirk! he shouted suddenly. I'm going to find her! Satya just stared at him, not stern any more, just frightened and very young and as he ran toward the stairs, he shouted back at her, You heard what Miss Fang said? Raise the alarm! Out onto dark ladderways again, down to the mooring platform where the Jenny Hanover hung at anchor. Hester! Hester! he shouted. And there she was, coming toward him through the glow of the landing lights, tugging the red shawl up across her face. He told her everything and she took the news with the cold, silent glare he had expected. Then it was her turn to run, and he was following her up the endless stairs. The wall made its own weather. As Tom and Hester neared the top, the air grew thin and chill, and big fluttering snowflakes brushed their faces like butterfly wings. They could see lantern light on a broad platform ahead, where a gas tanker was lifting away, empty from the high eries. Then there was an unbelievable gout of flame shooting out of the face of the wall, and another, and another, as if it were dragons, not airships, that were stabled there. Caught in the blast, the tanker's envelope exploded, white parachutes blossoming around it as it began to fall. Hester stopped for a moment and looked back, flames shining in her eye. He's done it. We're too late. He's fired their air fleet. They ran on. Tom's ribs hurt him at every breath, and the cold air scorched his throat, but he kept as close behind Hester as he could, crunching through snow along a narrow walkway to the platform outside the eries. The bronze gates stood open, and a crowd of men were pouring out, shielding their faces from the heat of the blaze within. Some of them were dragging wounded comrades, and near the main door, "'Tom saw Cora being tended by two of the ground crew. "'The aviator looked up as Tom and Hester ran to him. "'Valentine,' he groaned. "'He bluffed his way past the sentries, "'saying he wanted to bless our airships. "'He was setting his explosives when Anna and I arrived. "'Oh, Tom, we never imagined that even a barbarian "'would try something like this.' "'We weren't prepared. "'Our whole air fleet, "'My poor Mokili "'He broke off, coughing blood. "'Valentine's sword had pierced his lung. "'What about Miss Fang?' asked Tom. "'Cora shook his head. "'He did not know. "'Hester was already stalking away "'into the searing heat of the hangars, "'ignoring the men who tried to call her back. "'Tom ran after her. It was like running into an oven. He had an impression of a huge cavern with smaller caverns opening off it, the hangars where the League's warships were housed. Valentine must have gone quickly from one ship to the next, placing phosphorus bombs. Now only their buckling ribs were visible in the white-hot heart of the blaze. "'Hester!' shouted Tom, his voice lost in the roar of the flames, and saw her a little way ahead of him, hurrying down a narrow tunnel that led deeper into the wall. I'm not following her in there, he thought. If she wants to get herself trapped and roasted, that's her problem. But as he turned back toward the safety of the platform, the ammunition in the gondolas of the burning airships caught, and suddenly there were rockets and bullets flying everywhere, bursting against the stone walls and howling through the air around him. The tunnel was closer than the main entrance, and he scrambled into it, whispering prayers to all the gods he could think of. Fresh air was coming from somewhere in front of him, and he realized that the passage must lead right through the wall to one of the gun emplacements on the western face. Hester! he shouted. Only echoes replied, muddled with the echoing roar of the fires in the hangar. He pressed on. At a fork in the tunnel lay a huddled shape a young airman cut down by Valentine's sword. Tom breathed a sigh of relief that it was not Hester or Miss Fang, and then felt guilty because the poor man was dead. He studied the branching tunnel. Which way should he go? Hester! he shouted nervously. Echoes. A stray bullet from the hangar came whining past and struck sparks off the stonework by his head. Choosing quickly, he ducked down the right-hand passage. There was another sound now, closer and sharper than the dull roar of the fires, a thin, bird-like sound of metal on metal. Tom hurried down a slippery flight of steps, saw light ahead, and ran toward it. He emerged into the cold and the fluttering snow on a broad platform where a rocket battery gazed out toward the west. Flames flapped and tore in an iron brazier, lighting the ancient battlements, the sprawled bodies of the rocket crew, and the wild shimmer of swords as Valentine and Miss Fang battled each other back and forth across the scrabbled snow. Tom crouched in the shadows at the tunnel's mouth, clutching his aching ribs and staring. Valentine was fighting magnificently. "'He had torn off his monk's robes "'to reveal a white shirt, black breeches, and long black boots, "'and he parried and thrust and ducked gracefully "'under the aviatrix's blows. "'But Tom could see that he had met his match. "'Holding her long sword two-handed, "'Miss Fang drove him back toward the rocket battery "'and the bodies of the men he had killed, "'anticipating every blow he made, "'fainting and swinging, "'jumping into the air to avoid a low backstroke, until at last she smashed the sword from his hand. He went down on his knees to reach for it, but her blade was already at his throat, and Tom saw a dark rill of blood start down to stain the collar of his shirt. Well done, he said, and smiled the smile that Tom remembered from that night in the gut. A kind, amused, utterly sincere smile. Well done, Fung Hua. Quiet, she snapped. "'This isn't a game!' Valentine laughed. <laughs> "'On the contrary, my dear Windflower, it's the greatest game of all, and my team appears to be winning. Haven't you noticed that your air fleet is on fire? You really should have tightened up your security arrangements. I suppose because the League has had things its own way for a thousand years, you'll think you can rest on your laurels.' "'But the world is changing.' "'He's playing for time,' thought Tom. "'But he could not see why. "'Cornered on this high platform, unarmed, with no chance of escape, "'what did Valentine hope to gain by taunting the aviatrix? "'He wondered if he should go forward and pick up the fallen sword "'and stand by Miss Fang until help arrived. "'But there was something so powerful and dangerous about Valentine, "'even in defeat.' that he dared not show himself. He listened, hoping to catch the sounds of soldiers coming down the tunnel, and wondering what had become of Hester. All he could hear was the distant clamour of gongs and fire-bells from the far side of the wall, and Valentine's flirtatious, half-mocking voice. "'You should come and work for London, my dear. After all this time tomorrow the shield-wall will be rubble. You will need a new employer.' Your league is finished. And light burst down from above, the harsh beam of an airship's searchlight raking across the snow. The aviatrix reeled blindly backward, and Valentine leaped up, snatching his sword, pulling her hard against him as he drove it home. For a moment, the two of them stumbled together like drunken dancers at the end of a party close enough to Tom's hiding place for him to see the bright blade push out through the back of Miss Fang's neck and hear her desperate, choking whisper. Hester Shaw will find you. She will find you and... Then Valentine wrenched his sword free and let her fall, turning away. "'leaping up onto the battlements "'as the thirteenth-floor elevator came looming down "'out of the searchlight's glare. "'Chapter 29 Going Home "'The black airship had been drifting in silence, "'riding the wind to this high rendezvous, "'while the defenders of Batmunk Gompa "'were busy with fires and explosions.' Now her engines burst into life, churning the drifting snowflakes and drowning out Tom's cry of horror. Valentine walked out along the barrel of a rocket launcher as nimbly as an athlete on a bar, and sprang, spread-eagling himself for an instant on the naked air, before his hands found the rope ladder that Pusey and Gench had lowered for him. Catching it, he swung himself up into the gondola. Tom ran forward and was plunged into sudden darkness as the searchlight snapped off. Rockets from higher batteries came sparkling down to burst against the elevator's thick hide. One shattered some glass in the gondola, but the black airship was already powering away from the wall. The backwash from its propellers slammed into Tom's face as he knelt over Anna Fang, shaking her in the dim hope that she might wake. It's not fair! "'He sobbed. "'He waited till you were dazzled. "'You beat him!' "'The aviatrix said nothing, "'but stared past him with a look of stupid surprise, "'her eyes as dull as dry pebbles. "'Tom sat down beside her in the reddening snow "'and tried to think. "'He supposed he would have to leave Batmungompa now, "'get out fast before London came.' but the very thought of moving on again made him weary. He was sick of being swept to and fro across the world by other people's plans. A thin, hot anger started rising in him as he thought about Valentine flying home to a hero's welcome. Valentine was the cause of all this. It was Valentine who had ruined his life and Hester's and put an end to so many more. It was Valentine who had given the Guild of Engineers Medusa. Hester had been right. He should have let her kill him when she had the chance. There was a noise at the far end of the platform, and he looked up and saw a black mass of arms and legs and coat hurriedly untangling itself like a big spider fallen from the ceiling. It was Hester who had taken the wrong turn as she raced after Valentine and come out in an observation bunker high above. Now here she was, having scrambled down thirty feet of snowy wall and dropped the final ten. Her eye rested for a moment on the fallen aviatrix. Then she turned and went to the battlements and stared out at the dark and dancing snow. It should have been me, Tom heard her say. At least I would have made sure I took him with me. Tom watched her. He felt tight and sick and trembly from the grief and rage inside him, and knew that this was how Hester must feel, how she had always felt ever since Valentine killed her parents. It was a terrible feeling, and he could think of only one way to cure it. He groped under the collar of Anna's coat and found the key on its lanyard and wrenched it free. Then he stood up and went to where Hester was and put his arms around her, It was like hugging a statue. She was so stiff and tense. But he needed to hold on to something, so he hugged her anyway. Guns were still firing overhead, in the vain hope of hitting the thirteenth-floor elevator. He put his face close to Hester's ear and shouted over the noise, Let's go home! She looked around at that, puzzled and a little annoyed. Have you gone funny? Don't you see? he shouted. Laughing at the crazy idea that had just come creeping into his mind. Someone's got to make him pay. You were right. I shouldn't have stopped you before, but I'm glad I did, because the gut police would have killed you and then we'd never have met. Now I can help you get to him and help you get away afterward. We'll go back to London now, together. You have gone funny said Hester, but she came with him anyway, helping him find a way back through the shield wall, while soldiers came running past them, frightened, soot-stained, and far too late, crying out in woe when they saw the bodies on the rocket platform. The night sky over Batmunk Gompa was full of smoke and tatters of singed envelope fabric, Fires were still burning in the high eries, but already the roads in the valley were clogged with constellations of small lights, the lanterns of refugees spilling away into the mountains like water bursting from a breached dam. With the death of the air fleet, the shield wall was finished, and its people were fleeing as fast as their feet and mules and ox carts and freight balloons could take them. Down at the mooring platform, ships were already lifting into the smoky sky and turning south. The Caroline girl, Satya, was trying to rally some panic-stricken soldiers, sobbing, Stay and hold the wall! The southern air fleet will reinforce us! They can be here in less than a week! But everyone knew that Gompa would be gone by then, and London would be pushing south toward the League's heartlands. Stay and hold the wall, she begged. But the airships kept lifting past her, lifting past her. The Jenny Hanover still hung at anchor, silent, dark. The key that Tom had taken from Anna Fang's body fitted snugly into the lock on the forward hatch, and soon he was standing on the flight deck, staring at the controls. There were far more of them than he remembered. Are you sure we can do this? asked Hester softly. ''Of course,'' said Tom. He tried a few switches. The hatch sprang open again. The cabin lights came on. The coffee machine started making a noise like a polite dog clearing its throat, and a small inflatable dinghy dropped from the roof and knocked him over. ''Quite sure?'' she asked, helping him up. Tom nodded. ''I used to build model airships when I was little, so I understand the principle.'' And Miss Fang showed me the controls when we were in the mountains. I just wish she'd labelled everything in English. He thought for a moment, then hauled on another lever, and this time the engines throbbed into life. Out on the mooring platform people turned to stare, and some made the sign against evil. They had heard of Fung Hua's death and wondered if it was her restless ghost aboard the Jenny Hanover but Satya saw Tom and Hester standing at the controls and came running toward them. Frightened that she would stop him taking off, Tom hunted for the lever that moved the engine pods. Bearings grated as they swivelled into takeoff position. He laughed, delighted at the way the airship responded to the touch of his hands on the controls, hearing the familiar creak and huff of the gas valves somewhere overhead and the clang of the mooring clamps disengaging. People waved their arms and shouted, and Satya pulled out a gun, but at the last moment Captain Cora came stumbling out onto the platform, supported by one of his crewmen, and gently took it from her. He looked up at Tom, raising a hand to wish him luck, and the surprising pinkness of his palm and fingertips was what stuck in Tom's mind as the airship swayed uncertainly up into the sky and climbed through the smoke from the high eyries. He took one last look down at Batmunk Gompa, then swung her out over the shield wall and turned her nose toward the west. He was going home. Chapter 30 A Hero's Welcome The clouds that had shed their snow on Batmunk Gompa blew west to fall as yet more rain on London and it was raining still when the thirteenth-floor elevator reached home early the following afternoon. No crowds were waiting to welcome it. The sodden lawns of Circle Park were deserted, except for some workers from the recycling department who were cutting down the trees. But the Guild of Engineers had been warned of Valentine's return, and as the great airship came nosing down into the wet flare of the landing beacons, They ran out onto the apron, with the rain beating on their bald heads and the lights making splashy reflections on their coats. Catherine watched from her bedroom window as the ground crew winched the airship down and the excited engineers clustered closer. Now hatches were opening in the gondola. Now Magnus Crome was going forward with a servant holding a white rubber umbrella over him. And now... now father was coming down the gangplank, easy to recognize even at this distance by his height and his confident stride, and the way his all-weather cape filled and flapped in the rising breeze. The sight of him gave Catherine a twisting feeling, deep inside, as if her heart really was about to burst with grief and anger. She remembered how much she had been looking forward to being the first to greet him when he stepped back aboard the city. Now she was not sure that she could even bring herself to speak to him. Through the wet glass she saw him talk to Crome, nodding, laughing. A surge of white coats hid him from her for a moment, and when she saw him again he had pulled himself away from the Lord Mayor and was hurrying across the soggy lawns toward Cleo House, probably wondering why she hadn't been waiting for him at the quay. She panicked for a moment and wanted to hide— But Dog was with her, and he gave her the strength she needed. She closed the tortoiseshell shutters and waited until she heard Father's feet on the stairs, Father's knock at the door. "'Kate?' came his muffled voice. "'Kate, are you in there? I want to tell you all my adventures. I am fresh from the snows of Shanguo, with all sorts of tales to bore you with. Kate, are you all right?' She opened the door just a crack. He stood on the landing outside, dripping with rain, his smile fading as he saw her tearful, sleep-starved face. Kate, it's all right. I'm back. I know, she said, and it's not all right. I wish you died in the mountains. What? I know all about you, she told him. I've worked out what you did to Hester Shaw. She let him into the room and shut the door, calling sharply to Dog when he ran to greet him. It was dark with the shutters closed, but she saw Father look at the heap of books spilling from the corner table, then at her. There was a freshly dressed wound on his neck, blood on his shirt. She twined a finger in her tangled hair and tried hard not to start crying again valentine sat down on the unmade bed all the way from batmunk Gompa, anna fang's last promise had been echoing in the corners of his mind hester Shaw will find you to have the same name thrown at him here by catherine was like a knife in the heart oh you needn't worry said catherine bitterly no one else knows i learned the girl's name you see And Dr. Arkengarth told me how Pandora Shaw was murdered, and I'd already found out that she died seven years ago, around the time you got back from that expedition, and the Lord Mayor was so pleased with you. So I just put it all together, and... She shrugged. The trail had been easy to follow once she had all the clues. She picked up a book she had been reading and showed it to him. It was... Adventures on a Dead Continent, his own account of his journey to America. She pointed to a face in a group photograph of the expedition, an aviatrix who stood beside him, smiling. I didn't realize at first, she said, because her name had changed. Did you kill her yourself, or did you get Pusey and Gensch to do it? Valentine hung his head, angry, despairing, ashamed. A part of Catherine had been hoping against hope that she was wrong, that he would deny it and give her proof that he was not the Shaw's killer. But when she saw his head go down, she knew that he could not, and it was true. He said, You must understand, Kate, I did it for you. For me? He looked up at last, but not at her. He stared at the wall near her elbow and said, "'I wanted you to have everything. "'I wanted you to grow up as a lady, "'not as an out-country scavenger like I had been. "'I had to find something that Chrome needed. "'Pandora was an old comrade from the American trip, "'just as you say, "'and yes, she was with me when I found the plans "'and access codes to Medusa.' We never imagined it would be possible to reconstruct the thing. Later Pandora and I went our separate ways. She was an anti-tractionist and she married some clod-hopping farmer and settled down on a place called Oak Island. I didn't know she was still thinking about Medusa. She must have made another trip to America alone this time and found her way into another part of the same old underground complex, a part we'd missed on the first dig. That's where she found— A computer brain, said Catherine impatiently, the key to Medusa. Yes, murmured Valentine, astonished at how much she knew. She sent me a letter, telling me she had it. She knew it was worthless without the plans and codes, you see— and those were in London. She thought we could sell it and share the proceeds, and I knew that if I could give Crome a prize like that, it would make my fortune, and your future would be secure. And so you killed her for it, said Catherine. She wouldn't agree to sell it to Crome, said her father, She was an anti-tractionist, as I said. She wanted the League to have it. I I had to kill her, Kate. But what about Hester? said Catherine, numbly. Why did you have to hurt her? I didn't mean to, he said miserably. She must have woken up and heard something. She was a pretty child. She was about your age— and she looked so like you that she might have been your sister. Perhaps she was your sister. Pandora and I were very close at one time. My sister, gasped Catherine. Your own daughter? When I looked up from her mother's body and saw her staring at me, I had to silence her. I struck wildly at her, and I made a mess of it. I thought she was dead, but I couldn't bring myself to make sure. She escaped, vanished in a boat. I thought she must have drowned until she tried to stab me that night in the gut. And Tom? Catherine said. He learned her name, and so you had to kill him, too, because if he'd mentioned her to the historians, the truth might have come out. Valentine looked helplessly at her. You don't understand, Kate. If people discovered who she is and what I have done, not even Crome would be able to protect me. I would be finished and you would be dragged down with me. But Crome knows, doesn't he? asked Catherine. That's why you're so loyal, loyal as a dog, so long as you get paid and get to pretend that foreign daughter of yours is a high London lady. Rain, rain on the windows, and the whole room quivering as London dragged itself across the sodden earth. Dog lay with his head on his paws, his eyes darting from his mistress to Valentine and back. He had never seen them fight before, and he hated it. I used to think you were wonderful, said Catherine. I used to think that you were the best, bravest, wisest person in the world. But you're not. You're not even very clever, are you? Didn't you realise what chrome would use the thing for? Valentine looked sharply at her. Of course I did. This is a town-eat-town town world, Kate. It's a shame panzerstadt Bayreuth had to be destroyed, of course. But the shield wall has to be breached if London is to survive. We need a new hunting ground. But people live there, wailed Catherine. Only anti-tractionists, Kate, and most of them will probably get away. They'll stop us. They've got airships. No. In spite of everything, Valentine smiled, proud of himself. Why do you think Chrome sent me east? The League's northern air fleet is in ashes. Tonight, Medusa will blast us a passage through their famous wall. He stood up and reached for her, smiling, as if this victory that he was delivering would put right everything he had done. Chrome tells me that firing is scheduled for nine o'clock. There's to be a reception at the Guildhall beforehand. Wine, nibbles, and the dawn of a new era. Will you come with me, Kate? I'd like you to. Her last hope had been that he had not known Crome's mad plan. Now even that was gone. "'You fool!' she screamed. "'Don't you understand what he's doing is wrong? "'You've got to stop him! "'You've got to get rid of his horrible machine!' "'But that would leave London defenceless, "'in the middle of the hunting ground,' her father pointed out. "'So? "'We will have to carry on as we always have, "'chasing and eating, "'and if we meet a bigger city and get eaten ourselves, well?' "'Even that would be better than being murderers!' "'She couldn't bear to be in that room with him another second. "'She ran, and he did not try to stop her, "'or even call her back, "'just stood there, looking pale and stunned. "'She left the house and ran sobbing "'through the rain-swept park with Dog at her heels, "'until the whole of High London was between her and Father. "'I must do something,' was all she could think, I must stop Medusa. She hurried toward the elevator station while the goggle screen loops began to blare the good news of Valentine's return all over London. Chapter 31 The Eavesdropper London gathered speed, racing toward the mountains. Semi-static towns that had hidden for years on these high steps were startled out of their torpor by its coming and went lumbering away, leaving behind them green patches of farmland and once a whole static suburb. The city paid no heed to any of them. The whole of London knew the Lord Mayor's plan by now. In spite of the cold, people gathered on the forward observation decks and peered through telescopes toward Shanguo. "'eager for their first glimpse of the legendary wall. "'Soon,' they told each other, "'this very night, a whole new hunting ground.' "'Most people at the museum were used to Catherine and Dog by now, "'and nobody paid very much attention "'as she hastened through the lower galleries "'with the white wolf trotting behind her. "'A few noticed the frantic look in her eyes "'and the tears on her face.' but before they could ask her what was wrong or proffer a pocket-handkerchief, she had swept past, heading toward Mr. Nancaro's office at a near run. There she found a smell of turpentine and the lingering scent of the art historian's pipe tobacco, but no Nancaro, and no bevis pod. She ran back out into the hallway, where a fat third-class apprentice was mopping the floors. Mr. Nancaro's in the storerooms, miss he told her sullenly. He's got that funny new bloke with him. The funny new bloke was helping Mr. Nancaro drag a picture out of the storage racks when Catherine burst in. It was a huge gilt-framed painting called Quirk Overseas the Rebuilding of London by Walmart Strange. And when Bevis dropped the end he was holding it made a crash that echoed and re-echoed through the dusty storeroom like a small explosion. "'I say, pod,' complained Nancaro angrily. But then he, too, saw Catherine's face and quickly restrained himself. Uh, "'You look as if you need a nice cup of tea, Miss Valentine,' Hmm? he muttered, hurrying away into the maze of racks. "'Kate?' Bevis' pod took a few uncertain steps toward her. "'What's happened?' "'He wasn't used to comforting people.' It was not the sort of thing an apprentice engineer was trained for. He held his arms out stiffly to touch her shoulders and looked shocked when she flung herself against him. Uh, he said, there, there. Bevis, she sniffled, it's up to us now. We have to do something, tonight. Tonight, he frowned, struggling to keep up with her rapid, half-sobbed explanations. ''But do you mean just us, alone? I thought your father was going to help us.'' ''He's not my father any more,'' said Catherine bitterly, and realised that it was true. She clung to Bevis as tightly as she could, as if he were a raft that could carry her safely across this mire of misery and guilt. ''Father's Cromes man!'' That's why I've got to get rid of Medusa, do you see? I have to make amends for the things he's done. Nan came pottering back with two tin mugs of tea. Uh, um. Oh. Uh, ah, he mumbled, embarrassed at finding his two young friends in one another's arms. I mean. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, "'Paperwork! Must dash back in an hour or two! Carry on, Pod!' As he left, he almost fell over the fat third-class apprentice who had been mopping the passage just outside the storeroom door. "'For quirks' sake, Melifant! they heard him snap. "'Can't you keep out of the way?' But Herbert Melifant could not keep out of the way. Ever since his demotion he had been looking for a handhold that would help him claw his way back up to first class. This pod person had caught his eye a few days ago, this stranger who seemed so friendly with the old guildsman, who went about with the head historian's daughter, who dressed as an apprentice, but who didn't sleep with the others in the dormitory or join them for lessons. He had heard on the goggle screens that the Guild of Engineers were still hunting the people who had infiltrated their secret meeting, and he was starting to suspect that Dr. Vambrace might be very interested in Nancaro's little helper. As soon as the old man was out of sight, he put down his mop and pail and stepped back to the door. The Anti-Traction League can't defend themselves, Catherine was saying. That's what Father has been doing, spying out their cities and blowing up their air fleet. That's why it's up to us. What about the historians? asked Bevis. Catherine shrugged. They're too scared to help us. But I can do it alone. I know I can. Father's invited me to the Lord Mayor's reception. I'm going to go. I'm going to find Father and tell him I've forgiven him. And we'll go to Chrome's party, like a happy little family. But while the others are all telling Chrome how clever he's been and eating sausages on sticks, I'll slip away and find Medusa and smash it. Do you think a hammer would do the trick? I know where Dr. Arkengarth keeps the keys to the caretaker's stores. There's bound to be a hammer in there. Or a crowbar. Would a crowbar be better? She laughed and saw Bevis flinch at the mad, brittle sound. For a moment she feared that he was about to say something like, calm down, or it can't possibly work. She touched his face, his blushing ears, and felt the quick pulse beating in his throat and the muscles flexing as he swallowed. A bomb, he said. What? Medusa. Must be huge. It probably fills half of St. Paul's. If you really want to smash it, you need explosives. He looked excited and scared. The cleaning stuff the museum caretakers use has nitrogen in it, and if I mix it with some of Dr. Nancaro's picture-restoring fluids and make a timer... How do you know all this? asked Catherine, shocked, because even she had not thought as far as bombs. Basic chemistry, said Bevis with a shrug. I did a course in the learning labs. Is that all they think about, your lot? she whispered, "'Making bombs and blowing things up?' "'No, no,' he replied. "'But science is like that. "'You can use it to do whatever you want. "'Kate, if you really want to do this, "'I'll make you a bomb you can put in a satchel. "'If you can get to Medusa, "'leave it near the computer brain "'and set the timer and run away. Uh, "'Half an hour later!' Outside, Meliphant's ear flattened itself against the wood of the door like a pale slug. Faster and faster and faster. It is as if the Lord Mayor's eagerness has infected the very fabric of his city. The pistons in the engine rooms beat as eagerly as his heart. The wheels and tracks race like his thoughts, rushing toward the wall and the next chapter in London's great story. "'All afternoon Valentine has hunted for Catherine through the park, "'startling his friends from their suppers "'by suddenly looming up at the French windows, "'a dripping wraith in blood-stained clothes, demanding, "'Is my daughter here? Have you seen her?' "'Now he strides to and fro across the drawing-room at Clio House, "'his boots dribbling water onto the muddy carpet "'as he tries to walk the wet cold of the park out of his bones,' the fear, out of his mind. At last he hears footsteps on the gravel drive, footsteps in the entrance hall, and Pusey bursts in, looking as wet and miserable as his master. "'I tracked her down, Chief. She's at the museum. Been spending a lot of time there lately, according to old Kreeber, at the front desk.' "'Take me there!' shouts Valentine. Uh, "'You sure, Chief?' Pusey studies his own feet rather than look at his master's feverish, tear-streaked face. "'I think it might be better if you let her alone for a bit. She's safe at the museum, ain't she? And I reckon she needs a chance to think things over. She'll come back in her own time.' Valentine slumps down in a chair, and the old aviator moves quietly around the room, lighting the lamps. Outside the daylight is fading. I've polished your sword and laid out your best robes in the dressing room, says Pusey gently. It's the Lord Mayor's reception, sir, remember? Wouldn't do to miss it. Valentine nods, staring at his hands, his long fingers. Why did I go along with his schemes all these years, Pusey? Why did I give him Medusa? I couldn't rightly say, sir. He stands up with a sigh and heads for the dressing-room. He wishes he had Kate's sharpness to know so easily what's right, what's wrong. He wishes he had the courage to stand up to Chrome the way she wants him to. But it is too late for that. Too late. Too late. And Chrome himself looks up from his dinner a puree of vegetables and meat substitute with just the right amounts of proteins, carbohydrates, vitamins, etc., looks up at the shivering apprentice historian whom Vambrace has just thrust into his office and says, So, apprentice Meliphant, I gather you have something to tell us. Chapter 32 "'Chudley Pomeroy sees it through.' She found that she could cope. Earlier she had wanted to curl up in a corner and die of grief, but now she was all right. It made her remember the way she had felt when her mother died, flattened by the great numb blow of it, and faintly surprised at the way life kept going on. And at least this time she had Dog to help her, and Bevis.' "'Kate, I need another bolt, uh, like this one, but longer.' She had come to think of Bevis Pod as a sweet, clumsy, rather useless person, someone who needed her to look after him, and she suspected that was how the historians all thought of him as well. But that afternoon she had begun to understand that he was really much cleverer than her. She watched him work, hunched under a portable argon globe, in a corner of the transport gallery carefully measuring out the right amounts of scrubbing powder and picture-cleaning fluid. Now he was building a timing mechanism out of lengths of copper picture wire and parts from the dashboard of a centuries-old bug, fitting it all into the satchel she had found for him. A bolt, Kate? Oh, uh, uh, yes. She ratched quickly through the pile of spare parts on the floor beside him and found what he wanted, handed it to him checked her watch. It was eight o'clock. Soon she would have to go back to Cleo House and fit a smile onto her face and say to Father, I'm sorry I was so silly earlier. Welcome home. Please can I come with you to the Lord Mayor's party? There, said Bevis, holding up the satchel. It's done. It doesn't look like a bomb. That's the idea, silly. Look. He opened it up and showed her the package nestling inside the red button that she had to push to arm it, and the timing mechanism. "'It won't make a very big bang,' he admitted, "'but if you can get it close enough to the computer brain—' "'I'll find a way,' she promised, taking it from him. "'I'm Valentine's daughter. "'If anybody can get to Medusa, it's me.' He looked rueful, she thought, and she wondered if he was thinking of all that wonderful old-world computing power an engineer's dream— "'about to be sacrificed. "'I've got to do it,' she said. "'I know. "'I wish I could come with you, though.' "'She hugged him, "'pressing her face against his face, "'her mouth against his mouth, "'feeling him shiver "'as his hands came up nervously "'to stroke and stroke her hair. "'Dog gave a soft growl, "'jealous, perhaps, "'afraid that he was losing Catherine's love "'and would soon be abandoned.' "'like the poor old soft toys on the shelves in her bedroom. "'Oh, Bevis,' she whispered, pulling back, trembling. "'What's to become of us?' "'The sound of distant shouting reached them, "'echoing up the stairwell from the lower floors. "'It was too faint to make out any words, "'but they both knew at once that something must be wrong. "'Nobody ever shouted in the museum. "'Dog's growl grew louder.' He went running to the door, and they both followed him, pushing their way quietly out onto the darkened landing. A cool breeze touched their faces as they peered over the handrail and down, the long spiral of stairs dwindling into darkness below with the bronze handrails gleaming. More shouts. Then the bang and clatter of something dropped. Flashlight beams stabbed a lower landing, and they heard the shouting voice quite clear chudley pomeroys saying this is an outrage An outrage you are trespassing on the property of the guild of historians the engineer security team came up the stairs in a slapping rush of rubber-soled boots flashlights sliding over their coats and their shiny complicated guns They slowed as they reached the top and saw Dog's eyes flashing, his ears flattening backward as he growled and growled and crouched to spring. Guns flicked toward him, and Catherine grabbed him by the collar and shouted, He won't hurt you! He's just frightened! Don't shoot! But they shot him anyway, the guns giving sharp little cracks, and the impact of the bullets wrenching Dog away from her and slamming him back against the wall with a yelp. Then, silence, and the whispering sound of the big body falling. In the dancing flashlights, the blood looked black. Catherine gasped for breath. Her arms and legs were shaking with a quick, helpless shudder that she couldn't stop. She could not have moved if she had wanted to. But just in case, a sharp voice barked, Stay where you are, Miss Valentine. Dog! She managed to whine. ''Stay where you are. (laughs) The brute is dead.'' Dr. Vambrace came up the stairs, through the thin, shifting smoke. ''You too, Pod?'' he added, seeing the boy make a twitching move toward the body. He stood on the top step and smiled at them. ''We've been looking everywhere for you, Apprentice. I hope you're ashamed of yourself.'' Give me that satchel. Bevis held it out, and the tall engineer snatched it from him and opened it. Just as Melephant warned us. A bomb! Two of his men stepped forward and hauled the prisoners after him as he turned and started down the stairs. No! wailed Catherine, struggling to keep hold of Bevis's hand as they were dragged apart. No! No! Her voice bounced shrilly back at her from the ceiling and went echoing away down the stairwell, and she thought it sounded frail and helpless, like a child having a tantrum, a child caught playing some stupid, naughty trick and protesting at its punishment. She kicked at the shins of the man who held her, but he was a big man and booted and didn't even wince. "'Where are you taking us?' "'You are coming with me to top-tier, Miss Valentine,' said Vanbrace. "'You will be quite the talking-point of the Lord Mayor's little party. "'As for your sweetheart here, he'll be taken to the deep gut.' "'He grinned at the little noise Bevis made, a helpless gulped-back squeak of fear.' Oh, yes, Apprentice Pod, some very interesting experiences await you in the deep gut. It wasn't his fault, Catherine protested. She could feel things unravelling, her foolish plan running out of control and lashing backward to entrap her and Bevis and poor dog. I made him help me, she shrieked. It's nothing to do with Bevis. But Vambrace had already turned away, and her captor clamped a chemical-tasting hand across her mouth to stop her noise. Valentine's bug pulls up outside the guild hall, where the bugs of most of the guild heads are already parked. Gensh gets out and holds the lid open for his master, then fusses over him like a mother sending her child off to school— brushing his hair off his face and straightening the collar of his best black robe, buffing the hilt of his sword. Valentine looks absently up at the sky. High feathery clouds lit by the fast-sinking sun. The wind is still blowing from the east, and it brings a smell of snow that cuts through his thoughts of Catherine for a moment, making him think again of Shanguo. Hester Shaw will find you the windflower had whispered, dying. But how could she have known about Hester? She could not have met the girl, could she? Could she? Is Hester still alive? Has she made her way somehow to Batmunkompa? And is she waiting in those mountains now, ready to climb back aboard London and try again to kill him, or worse, to harm his daughter?' Pushing Gensh's big hands away, he says, If you don't mind missing the party, boys, it might be worth taking the thirteenth-floor elevator up for a spin tonight, just in case those poor, brave fools from the League try anything. Right you are, chief. The two old airmen have not been looking forward to the Lord Mayor's reception, all that finger food and posh chat. Nothing could cheer them up better than the prospect of a good fight. Gensch climbs in next to Pusey, and the bug veers away, startling engineers and beefeaters out of its path. Valentine straightens his own tie and walks quickly up the steps into the guild hall. The engineers marched their prisoners through the lower galleries of the museum to the main hall. There was nobody around. Catherine had never seen the museum as empty as this. Where were the historians? She knew they couldn't help her, but she wanted to see them, to know that somebody knew what had become of her. She kept listening for the pattering feet of dog on the floor behind her and being surprised when she couldn't hear them, and then remembering. Bevis was marching next to her, but he wouldn't look at her, just stared straight ahead as if he could already see the chambers of the deep gut and the things that would happen to him there. Then, at the top of the steps that led down to the main entrance, the engineers halted. Down in the foyer, their backs to the big glass doors, the historians were waiting. While Vambrace's men were busy upstairs, they had raided the display cases in the Weapons and Warfare Gallery, arming themselves with ancient pikes and muskets, rusty swords and tin helmets. Some had strapped breastplates over their black robes, and others carried shields. They looked like a chorus of brigands in an amateur pantomime. "'What is the meaning of this?' barked Dr. Brace. Chudley Pomeroy stepped forward, holding a blunderbuss with a brass muzzle as broad as a tubers. Catherine started to realise that other historians were watching from the shadows at the edges of the hall, lurking behind display cases, pointing steam-powered rifles through the articulated ribs of dinosaurs. "'Gentlemen,' (laughs) said Pomeroy nervously, uh, "'you are on the property of the Guild of Historians. "'I suggest that you unhand those young people immediately.' Uh, "'Immediately,' agreed Dr. Karuna, training her dusty musket on the red wheel between Brace's eyebrows the engineer began to laugh <laughs> "'You old fools! Do you think you can defy us? "'Your guild will be disbanded because of what you've done here today. "'Your silly trifles and trinkets will be fed to the furnaces, "'and your bodies will be broken on engines of pain in the deep gut. "'We'll make you history, since history is all you care about.' "'We are the Guild of Engineers. We are the future!' There was a heartbeat pause, near silent, just the echo of Brace's voice hanging on the musty air and the faint sounds of men reaching for guns and arthritic fingers tightening on ancient triggers. Then the foyer vanished into smoke and stabbing darts of fire, and the noise bounced from the high-domed roof and came slamming down again, a ragged crackle split by the deep boom of Pomeroy's blunderbuss and the shrieking roar of an old cannon concealed in a niche behind the ticket office, which went off with a great jet of flame as Dr. Nancaro set his lighter to the touch-hole. Catherine saw Vambrace and the two men next to him swiped aside, Dr. Arkengarth fall backward with his arms windmilling, felt the man who held her jerk and stumble and the thick slap as a musket ball went through his rubber coat. He fell away from her, and she dropped to her knees, wondering where to hide. Nothing remained of Vambre's but his smouldering boots, which would have been cartoony and almost funny, except that his feet were still inside them. Half his men were down, but the rest were rallying, and they had better weapons than the historians. They sprayed the foyer with gunfire, striking sparks from the marble floor and flinging splinters of dinosaur bone high into the air. Display cases came apart in bright cataracts of powdered glass, and the historians who were cowering behind them went scrambling back to other hiding places or fell among the fallen exhibits and lay still. Above them, argon globes smashed and guttered until the hall was dark, stuttering like cine film in the migraine flicker of gunlight, and the engineers pushed forward through it toward the doors. Behind them, forgotten, Bevis Pod reached for an abandoned gun and swung it up, his long hands feeling their way across the shiny metal for catches and triggers. Catherine watched him. The air around her was thick with wailing shot and whirling chips of marble and moaning battle frisbees, but she could not tear her eyes or her mind away from Bevis long enough to think about finding cover. She watched him unfold the gun's spindly armrest and wedge it into the crook of his elbow and saw the small blue holes it made in the backs of the engineer's coats. They flung up their arms and dropped their guns and spun around and fell and Bevis Pod watched them through the bucking sights with a calm, serious look. Not her gentle Bevis any more, but someone who could kill quite coldly, as if the engineer in him really did have no regard for human life. Or maybe he had just seen so much death in the deep gut that he thought it was a little thing and did not mind dealing it out. And when he stopped shooting, it was very quiet, just the rubbery lisp of the corpses settling, and a quick, bony rattle that Catherine slowly recognised as the sound of her own teeth chattering. From the corners of the hall historians came creeping. There were more of them than Catherine had feared. In the flicker of battle she had thought she saw all of them shot, but although some were wounded, the only ones dead were a man called Weymouth, whom she had never spoken to, and Dr. Arkengarth, The old curator of ceramics lay near the door, looking indignant, as if death was a silly modern fad that he rather disapproved of. Bevis pod knelt staring at the gun in his hands, and his hands were shaking, and blue smoke unravelled from the mouth of the gun and drifted up in scrolls and curlicues toward the roof. Pomeroy came stumping up the stairs, His wig had been blown off, and he was nursing a wound on his arm, where a splinter of bone had cut him. (laughs) "'Look at that!' he said. "'I must be the first person to be harmed by a dinosaur for millions of years!' He blinked at Catherine and Bevis, then at the fallen engineers. None of them were laughing at his little joke. "'Well,' he said, "'Well, eh? Gosh, we showed them. As soon as I told the others what was going on, we all agreed it wouldn't do. Well, most of us did. The rest are locked in the canteen, along with any apprentices we thought might support Chrome's men. You should have seen us, Kate. We won't let them take Miss Valentine,' we all said, and we didn't. "'It goes to show, you know.' An engineer is no match for a historian with his dander up. Or her dander, CP, chirped Moira Plym, hurrying up the steps to stand beside him. Oh, that'll teach them to fiddle with my furniture, all right. That'll show them what happens to... The visor of the helmet she was wearing snapped shut, muffling the rest. Catherine found the fallen satchel, lying in the muck and blood on the stairs. It seemed to be undamaged, except for some unpleasant stains. "'I've got to go to top-tier. Stop Medusa. It's the only way. I'll go to the elevator station and—' No!' Clytie Potts came bounding up the steps from the front entrance. "'A couple of engineers who were stationed outside got away,' she said. "'They'll have raised the alarm. There'll be a guard on the elevators and more security men here at any minute. Stalkers, too, probably.' She met Pomeroy's worried gaze, and dipped her head as if it was all her fault. "'Sorry, C.P.' "'That's all right, Miss Potts,' Pomeroy slapped her kindly on the shoulder, almost knocking her over. "'Don't worry, Catherine. We'll keep the devils busy here, and you can sneak up to top tier by the cat's creep.' "'What's that?' asked Catherine. "'It's a sort of thing historians know about, and everybody else has forgotten.' said Pomeroy, beaming, an old stairway left over from the first days of London when the elevator system couldn't always be relied on. It goes up from Tier 3 to Top Tier, passing through the museum on the way. Are you ready to travel? She wasn't, but she nodded. I'm going with her, said Bevis. No! It's all right, Kate. I want to. He was turning dead engineers over, looking for a coat without too many holes in it. When he found one, he began to fumble with the rubber buttons. "'If the engineers see you walking about alone up there, they'll guess what happened,' he explained. "'But if I'm with you, they'll think you're a prisoner.' "'He's right, Kate,' said Pomeroy, nodding, as Clytie Potts helped the young engineer into the coat and wiped away the worst of the blood with the hem of her robe. He checked his watch— 8.30. 8.30. Medusa goes off at 9, according to the goggle screens. That should give you plenty of time to do whatever you're planning to do. But we'd better start you on your way before those engineers get back with reinforcements.